This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Almost 60% of our electricity in the U.S. currently comes from burning fossil fuels. And when you include the gas-powered cars most of us drive and the gas appliances in our homes, that's a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. And those are making our planet less livable for everyone. We know the world has to stop burning fossil fuels if we want to avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. The latest United Nations climate report reminded us just how soon that needs to happen. For the U.S., it's cutting two-thirds of fossil fuels by 2035. When it comes to carbon-free energy, many of us think of renewables like solar or wind. But what about nuclear? Nuclear energy currently powers 20% of our electricity, according to the Energy Information Administration. But where it should fit in a carbon-free future is up for debate. I don't feel it's a safe option. I experienced going through the Three Mile Island accident, and I believe that human error is just too much of a risk when it comes to nuclear power and that the results of an accident would be too devastating. Um, I believe that there are a lot of other very good options for solving our climate change problem, and if we have the will to do it, we can do it, but I don't feel nuclear power is the right option. My name's John Kutch. I live by Byron, Illinois, where two of the most efficient nuclear plants in the world are. When people say, do you want nuclear in your backyard? I can say, I have it in my backyard, and I'm grateful I do every day. And I know me and my neighbors would be happy to have more. We have to get over this irrational fear of nuclear and adopt new build nuclear for our future. How safe is the nuclear power we already have, and what role should it play in the energy transition? We answer those questions and get into a lot more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back in just a moment. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the conversation. With us here in Washington is Samantha Gross. She's the Director of the Energy, Security, and Climate Initiative at the Brookings Institution. Samantha, welcome. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Joe Dominguez, the CEO of Constellation Energy. That's the largest nuclear power plant operator in the U.S. Joe, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jen. 
Let's start by talking about the nuclear reactors we already have. According to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, there were 93 reactors in the U.S. as of last year. Those are spread across 55 plants in 28 states. Joe, exactly how is power generated in a nuclear reactor? Well, we take uranium from the ground that is lightly enriched, meaning it has uh, an isotope of uranium that uh, you could actually split uh, atoms uh, with, and uh, we use that. A lot of people confuse it with the uranium made used to u- make uh, bombs, but it's, it's a very different thing. To, to make a bomb, you have to have uranium enriched to well over 90%. We're talking about uranium that's re- enriched to about 6% with fissional product. It, as uh, the atom splits, it creates heat. We use that heat to boil water. That steam that is created turns a turbine, which in turn turns an electric generator that powers uh, the grid. And how many reactors does a nuclear power plant usually have? Well, usually uh, the the sizes vary, but uh, as you mentioned, there are only 93 across the U.S. Each one of them uh, produces on average about 1,000 megawatts of power, and one megawatt of power is enough for about 1,000 family homes. How many reactors does Constellation Energy operate? We operate 21, and we have an ownership share in 23. Samantha, the conversation around nuclear energy has shifted in recent years as countries look for ways to meet energy demand while cutting back on fossil fuels. But how do you think about the risks of nuclear energy compared to the risks of fossil fuels? You know, it's a great question. I think people are quite scared of nuclear energy because many of us have lived long enough to remember some of the the scariest accidents that have happened at Chernobyl and at Fukushima. But actually, we often ignore the everyday risks of burning fossil fuels, the air pollution, and the health effects and even the deaths that that air pollution harms. So if you look at it in terms of overall harm to human beings, burning fossil fuels for power is much more dangerous and harmful to people than nuclear power has ever been. But I can hear someone listening to that assessment and saying, yeah, but if something goes wrong in a nuclear power plant, the damage to the surrounding area is immediate and quite potentially fatal. So how would you respond to that concern? I think that concern is real. I think it is extremely important that nuclear power plants are both designed in ways that makes them as fail-safe as is reasonably possible, and also that the operators are well-trained, that you don't get into an attitude of, we do this every day and don't worry about it. Um, You really have to manage these plants well. But if you look in terms of actual damage to human health from, you know, to date, fossil fuels have been far worse. But I get the concern. Can you give us a little more context when we're talking about the damage to human health uh, and just in terms of numbers? What do you mean? I didn't bring those numbers with me. But if you think in terms of everything from, from asthma effects, if you think in terms of breathing in particulate matter and how harmful that can be for both lung health and heart health, um, those are everyday things that we've all gotten used to. And we don't think to attribute them to fossil fuels. However, um, they are. But they're the kind of things that we get used to every day. It's kind of the argument about fear, uh, fear of flying, whereas driving to the airport is far more dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's that sort of situation. We don't attribute it to 
power from fossil fuels. Now I want to add another voice to the conversation. Edwin Lyman is the director of nuclear power safety for the Union of Concerned Scientists, a nonprofit group of scientists. He's a physicist who keeps a very close eye on nuclear power plants and their safety protocols. Ed, thanks for joining us. Hello. Well, we got this email from Flora who says, Living near Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania taught me that one should never consider nuclear. It is clean until it litters the world's soils, waters, and forests forever. I suggest everyone read the Three Mile Island incident report with details leading up to the finale. Human error is not negotiable. Rampant mistakes cost millions of people lingering concerns. You can't learn from nuclear mistakes. You can die from them. No one should ever have to be downwind from these horrible, lingering decisions. And that Three Mile Island incident was a nuclear plant, and one of its reactors melted down in 1979. It's the worst nuclear accident in U.S. history. Ed, briefly, just walk us through what happened at Three Mile Island. Well, Three Mile Island was a uh, very complicated event that was a combination of mechanical failure and human error, and um, and, and really illustrated in those earlier days of nuclear power how sensitive nuclear plants are to that combination of failures. The plant, uh, did uh, one of the reactors did experience a partial meltdown, but it was luckily terminated before the fuel melted all the way through the reactor vessel, which is what happened three times over at Fukushima in 2011. And for that reason, uh, Three Mile Island was not as severe as Fukushima, uh, but really it was saved by, uh, in the nick of time, Uh, when a a shift supervisor came on, reassessed the problem and realized that the uh, crew uh, didn't understand what was going on. So it was was a close call. Now, we heard from Flora there uh, referring to lingering uh, decisions or or longer-term impacts from Three Mile Island. What is she referring to? Well, the... uh Radiation release, uh, there's some controversy over how bad Three Mile Island was. Um, uh, Because the fuel did not uh, completely melt through the reactor vessel and radioactive releases were limited, but I prefer to, um, um, you know, what what we have seen is that light water reactors, um, such as the U.S. fleet are composed of, can experience catastrophic failures under circumstances that go beyond the, uh, those that they were originally designed to withstand. And so if you look at the Fukushima accident, again, where there were three reactor meltdowns in 2011 in Japan, uh, when that plant was inundated uh, by a flood that was well beyond what it had been designed to withstand, you can see how bad uh, a, a nuclear power accident can actually be, uh, where there was a substantial release of radioactive material uh, uh, 160,000 people had to be evacuated. Most of them have not returned. The uh, long-term cost and health consequences are extreme. And um, I don't think it serves uh, nuclear power very well to underestimate those particular, those, um, the extent of those consequences. You need to be realistic um, and not underplay them uh, because that is, could ultimately lead to future mistakes and complacency that could make um, that could lead to an even greater disaster. So, Ed, what are your biggest safety concerns with nuclear power here in the U.S.? You, you talked about some of the consequences, but what just around safety and the current state of the reactors we have, what are your biggest concerns? Well, with an aging fleet, uh, you are going to experience um, material degradation, the potential for uh, for corrosion that isn't being detected because inspections are not taking place frequently enough 
uh, to ensure that you catch things in time. If you look at what just happened in France, um, France a few years ago uh, boasted that it was the master of nuclear power. Uh, it was admired around the world for its fleet. Uh, but last year, almost half the reactors had to be shut down because they discovered a corrosion process that was not expected and turned out to be unusually severe. Now, here in the United States, it's not clear that similar processes are not taking place. Uh, there needs to be, you know, as Samantha said, robust inspections and maintenance. Um, but because those cost a lot of money, there's constant pressure to reduce the frequency and, and intensity of inspections. Samantha, can you paint the regulatory picture for us right now when it comes to safety? Who's doing the checking? How often are those checks happening? Um, who's overseeing <laughs> the process of making sure nuclear reactors are safe in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, Joe has a better feel for how often those checks take place because he's living that every day. But the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is in charge of regulating power plants here in the United States, both existing power plants and keeping our existing fleet going, perhaps for as long as 80 years, as, as our guest said earlier. And also... Um, looking at the potential for new types of reactors and the, the inherent safety features of new reactors that are also being designed in the United States today. And so, I mean, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is, is, is one of the, the finest organizations in the world that does this kind of work. Joe, you said that you're, you're doing safety checks every day, but how often are regu regulators coming in to these plants to do checks? Constantly. Uh, the, the regulators effectively live with us in regions around the country and are constantly reviewing both the data and the physical operation of the plants. Ed, if we're moving in the direction of using more nuclear energy as a way to get off fossil fuels, are there steps you'd like to see regulators take to ensure these reactors are, are safe? Well, yes, and, and the... Uh, the, unfortunately, the tendency both for oversight of the operating fleet as well as licensing procedures for new reactors are um, going in the wrong direction. And again, that's because of the cost pressure that the industry is under. Uh, for operating reactors, the industry has been pressing the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to reduce the frequency of very important inspections. And that, again, could um, have unintended consequences if important uh, safety problems are being missed. And every almost every inspection turns up problems uh, often associated with degradation of components, uh, maintenance procedures that were not being conducted appropriately, and, and um, operator errors. So, so there are uh, problems in the fleet every day, and the inspectors can't see everything. Now, with respect to new reactors, uh, I disagree with uh, Samantha's characterization. I've looked in detail at the designs of many of the new reactors that are being proposed. And they, to, uh, to the one, have issues uh, with um, uh, the so-called passive safety features that are being employed. These are not as simple as the vendors like to make them seem. And in addition, because smaller reactors uh, actually will cost more in terms of the unit cost of electricity, uh, there's a push to reduce the um, costly uh, safety features like having a reactor containment, like having a full complement of security guards, like having um, uh, well-trained operators. And so if this trend continues, 
I'm very concerned that the safety of both the operating fleet as well as new reactors are going to be less safe uh, than we see even today. So we have to come in here. Your response. Sure. Ed makes some great points about um, about inherent safety, the need for inspections. One of the things that I just wanted to point out is the source of some of that cost pressure. And that is that other forms of zero carbon energy, particularly wind and solar, have gotten very cheap and have provided um, competition for these. Also, natural gas has gotten very cheap in the United States. That's part of the reason why you see existing nuclear plants shutting down in the United States. You think they're here, they're built, they're inexpensive to operate. But that's actually not the case for all the reasons that Ed described, and they're under cost pressure from other forms of electricity. Well, we can't have this conversation without talking about radioactive waste. Ed, how much waste is created and what are the different levels of radioactive waste? Well, the the primary um, source of radioactive waste is the spent nuclear fuel uh, that's generated um, uh, when the uranium fuel that's used is no longer suitable for producing electricity. And each reactor produces about, let's say, 20 metric tons of spent fuel a year. Uh, That uh, waste has been accumulating at reactor sites uh, for many decades um, because the uh, U.S. does not have a plan in place for a geologic repository for final disposal of that spent fuel. And the problem is there are radioactive components of that spent fuel that can remain dangerous for hundreds of thousands of years. So it really has to be isolated from the environment. And the fact that there's been a failure uh, to find a long-term solution, I think, is is another Achilles heel uh, of the industry that really has to be dealt with. And I know we have to let you, you go soon, but how safe do you think the current systems of dealing with nuclear waste actually are? Is there more you'd like to see done? Yes. Well, uh, the problem is that at each nuclear power plant, they have both uh, wet storage and dry storage. So um, uh, much of the spent fuel is still being stored in swimming pool-like structures underwater that do require continuous cooling. After a certain number of years, that fuel can uh, can be moved to dry storage casks, uh, which are not perfect, but they're safer. Um, but uh, the problem is that those uh, wet pools are vulnerable in, the, in case of, uh, of a, a severe accident or a loss of electrical power. So at, at the Fukushima uh, plant, uh, one of the spent fuel pools came dangerously close to actually experiencing a, a, a meltdown and fire. Uh, so those are less stable than dry storage. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, after the Fukushima accident, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission considered whether that spent fuel should be moved from uh, or expedited from wet storage to dry storage and decided that it wasn't worth the cost um, of, of doing so. But unfortunately, that means these plants still have a higher risk of uh, a spent fuel pool fire in the event of, uh, let's say, a natural disaster like, like a flood or earthquake that damages the, the cooling. So, uh, so that's one problem uh, with current storage plants. But ultimately... Uh, I do agree uh, with Joe that there has to be a geologic repository because you can't guarantee uh, that there are going to be institutions over uh, the millennia that will ensure the safety of spent fuel as long as it requires active monitoring and and, uh, storage on the surface. And that's that's the dilemma uh, here. So so although uh, many people say that spent fuel uh, disposal is just a political problem. It's not a technical problem. I think it's both. 
but even so, if you can't solve that political problem, then you haven't dealt with the, the situation. And it does raise questions about whether uh, society can keep generating uh, more and more of this waste without having that final uh, safe disposal plan in place. That's Edwin Lyman. He's the director of nuclear power safety for the Union of Concerned Scientists. He keeps an eye on the safety and security of nuclear power plants. Ed, thanks for your time. Thank you. A new nuclear plant in Georgia came online this month, years late and billions of dollars over budget. We get to the economics of nuclear power next. More from you and our guests in a moment. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. We're discussing nuclear power. Let's get back to our conversation. Joe, beyond the concerns of people nearby, there's also environmental risks when we talk about nuclear waste. XL Energy shut down one of their plants in Minnesota last week to fix a leak inside the plant. XL said some radioactive water made it into the groundwater supply. How do you prevent and monitor potential environmental damage from your plants? You know, I think that situation um, is already well monitored, as, as I understand it. The, the material hasn't left the site. It's uh, a tritium byproduct that naturally occurs. Uh, but it's the same regimen that we've been talking about, making sure we're constantly monitoring the pipes and other operating systems around the plants. And again, I just make the point that if your listeners want to get into the World Health Organization's review of it, there's an article out there called Deaths Per Kilowatt. Not an attractive title, but it, it really ranks all the power sources around the world and concludes that nuclear is the safest for humans. Read it. It's a short read. We got this email from John who says, I grew up in Midland, Michigan and watched the attempt to construct a nuclear power plant nearly 50 years ago. There were many protests that contributed to the decision not to proceed. The worst part was that the contractor did not realize that the site was not appropriate for the weight of the containment building, which, as it was constructed, began to sink into the very sandy soil. Despite this, I remain convinced that nuclear is the best option for clean energy at this point. At the same time, I do not want to see large plants that we have built in the past. The more 
more distributed power generation becomes, the more resilient it will be in the face of natural disasters, especially in light of continued climate change. Samantha, a new nuclear plant went online in Georgia this month. It was years late and billions of dollars over budget. John thinks the high costs mean nuclear isn't such a good idea. Hi, this is John in Atlanta, Georgia. Nuclear is a resource, but there's lost opportunity costs because it takes so long to build. Last year in the U.S., we added as much utility-scale solar as one nuclear reactor. And also, we did it at one-tenth of the cost. So it's both time-consuming and it's very expensive to build nuclear so for those reasons, not good. Samantha, what does the cost of building new nuclear plants mean for it as a long-term power source? Well, I think after the experience of that Georgia plant, I think I can confidently say that you'll never see a very large nuclear plant built like that in the United States again. Never mind political or public opinion, um, it's simply a cost question. I don't think any utility will take on that risk. Um, So in terms of building new nuclear plants, I should say a little more about that one first. I mean, that plant went multiples over budget, not just percent, but multiples of its original budget. It bankrupted Westinghouse. And a similar plant being built in South Carolina was just flat canceled. The utility gave up on building it because the cost overruns were so great. Um, So if we're going to see new nuclear built in the United States, it's going to have to be done differently. And the hope in this country is for these small modular reactors that that we've been talking about. Um, I certainly hope we can get them designed safely, as Ed is speaking about, not a nuclear physicist. But there's certainly a lot of hope that they will be both safe and less expensive, because the current form of building these large one-off nuclear reactors is just not going to work economically anymore. Joe, does Constellation have any plans for new nuclear operations? Not for new nuclear. I think I think our conclusion is pretty much the same as Samantha's. The ones that have been built are, are valuable gems to keep operating. But building, replacing them is going to be difficult. In places like China, they're doing it. They do it a lot faster. They have the infrastructure capability to do it. In this country, I think it is going to be the small modular reactors that Bill Gates and others have uh, been strong proponents of. We got this email from Philip who says, we will not reach greenhouse gas neutrality without the use of more nuclear power. Samantha, in general, how much of the conversation these days is about keeping enough nuclear online to get us through the transition off fossil fuels versus adding new nuclear plants to replace those fossil fuels? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, Right now, as we've talked about for the whole hour, nuclear is about 20% of U.S. power generation, and it's currently our largest source of zero zero carbon power. And so it's really important to keep those plants running in order to meet our greenhouse gas goals, as long as it can be done safely. Um, You even see in in the Inflation Reduction Act that there are subsidies for existing nuclear to help keep those plants online and producing zero carbon power. This is President Joe Biden's um, authorization of $6 billion in federal grants for struggling nuclear plants? That's right, because that's sort of a recognition that these are currently our largest source of zero carbon power. As we think going forward, and something we haven't talked about yet today, is the important difference between nuclear and wind and solar and why we talk about this both and strategy. And that is nuclear can provide electrons whenever you need them. Power is available whenever you want it. Whereas wind and solar are intermittent. They generate when it's windy and sunny. And so 
reliable sources of power that can generate all the time are going to be really important for the grid going forward, as will be storage and other technologies. And so that's why we think of a grid that includes many different kinds of technologies so that we can keep reliable power available for people whenever they need it. Well, that takes us to this email from Patrick. Your guests need to explain the concept of renewable intermittency. It is simply not possible to decarbonize the U.S. energy sector by ramping up wind and solar without also achieving radical improvements in energy storage. Therefore, the only way to reach zero carbon right now is nuclear. Wind and solar cannot possibly bridge the gap without substantial energy storage in the grid, which does not currently exist. As you said, nuclear currently accounts for half of our carbon-free electricity. Renewables have seen record investment in recent years, but how ready are we to transmit and store all of the additional electricity we need? And I'd like to hear from both of you on this. Joe, go ahead. On a scale of one to 10, the ability that we have from a technology standpoint to power the grid, which requires power to always be on, with sources of power that only operate when the wind is blowing and the sun is out, on a scale of one to 10, we're less than a one on that trajectory. That is why every single analysis that has been done on dealing with the climate crisis concludes that we need a form of energy that does what nuclear does today, and that's provide zero emission energy predictably at all times of the day and year. Samantha, do you agree with that lesson one? I might have said something slightly larger, but I want to talk about different kinds of storage very quickly. Um, We can use batteries reasonably well to store electricity for a few hours. Let's say afternoon sun for evening TV watching and dishwasher running. However, what we're not good at at all right now is longer-term storage. Thinking about what do we do in the wintertime when it's not as sunny, or if you have spells where it's just very still and you're not getting wind operation, we do not have good solutions for that today. We're talking to Samantha Gross. She's the director of the Energy, Security, and Climate Initiative at the Brookings Institution, and Joe Dominguez, the CEO of Constellation Energy. That's the largest nuclear power plant operator in the U.S. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. I mean, part of what I'm hearing you say there, Samantha, is that this is part of a a broader discussion we've been having about infrastructure in the U.S. and the investment that's still needed there. Am I hearing that correctly? Absolutely. I think infrastructure is one of the most important issues right now. After the Inflation Reduction Act, the act that was passed last August, putting a ton of money into new investments to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, the real question is, can we build all these things? It is very difficult to get a permit to build most anything in this country, um, both generation and transmission to move that electricity around. And so, yeah, thinking about the level of infrastructure that we'll need to make this transition is tremendously important. And I think sort of the next frontier in legislation. Joe, Constellation is a stated goal of, quote, 100% carbon-free electricity by 2040. Right now, your portfolio includes natural gas, which is a fossil fuel. How are you shifting away from that? Well, um, you know, I, I think, and I think Samantha touched on this, we're not only going to need investment, but frankly, we're going to need new technologies. I think we're going to need to figure out a way to burn natural gas and separate and sequester in the earth or uh, in in some sort of uh, dry method all of the emissions. And there's a great deal of work being done on that, as well as small modular reactors to figure out this technology gap. It's not, this isn't just a permitting issue or a will issue. This is flatly, we don't have the technology yet to power a grid 
with all zero emission technology. That's but, why it hasn't been done. But even with the sequestering technology, if if that comes to be, that's still using a fossil fuel, and <laughs> there are still complications with that. So, I mean, if if you're, are you planning what, to invest what, in more nuclear? Are you planning to invest in renewables to try to get to that well, 100% free goal by 2040? Well, Let's kind of take this apart. Are you worried about using fossil fuels if we sequester all of the air pollution associated with those fossil fuels? Are you trying to get to just wind and solar? If that's the objective, then that's different. But what we're trying to deal with the climate crisis is is trying to use whatever methodology and all of the above strategy. And fossil fuels are going to be a piece of this if we could sequester the emissions. We think we're going to be able to do that safely. But that's a coming technology. But if the technology isn't here right now, then that doesn't get us closer to the goal the U.S. has set to try to reduce or move towards more renewables to move to a carbon-free future. So it's sort of like we're we're waiting for the technology. We're building the plane while while we're flying it. So, Jen, that's that's the reality of it. That Mm -hmm. is that is simply the reality for so many parts of the sector that we don't yet. We're not going to run airplanes, for example on batteries. They're too heavy. We need to have other solutions to use fossil fuels that are created in a carbon-free environment. All of these things are under development. But one of the reasons this is going to be one of the hardest challenges humanity has ever faced, if not the hardest, is because we have to do it so quickly and we have to develop technologies that don't exist. The value of the small modular reactors and the reason that the federal government, Joe Biden's Department of Energy are so focused on nuclear today and have included in the the bills is because it works. Samantha, I want to give you the last word here. Sure. I think this this later part of the discussion has really hit on one of the great challenges, and that it, there, there is no environmentally perfect solution to climate change. Everything we do is going to involve trade-offs. When we talk about carbon capture and storage, it's frustrated that we have to deal with the carbon waste and that we're still producing fossil fuels. Nuclear, we're mining uranium and we're dealing with waste. Wind and solar, we're... we're um, mining for these rare earth metals and lithium and cobalt, which have their own problems. There's no solution that's like perfectly environmentally clean. Everything we do is going to involve trade-offs. Renewables have a lot of land use. And so we have to sort of pick and choose. There's nothing that's a free lunch here. Are, Are there any questions you would leave our audience with, things we should ask ourselves? Well, I mean, I think you, I think you need to remember that, I'm, that what we need to think about is emissions to deal with climate change. And just keep in mind that no solution is perfect. So always think about what the trade-offs are among the different solutions. That's Samantha Gross. She's the director of the Energy, Security, and Climate Initiative at the Brookings Institution. Also with us, Joe Dominguez, the CEO of Constellation Energy. That's the largest nuclear power plant operator in the U.S. Samantha, Joe, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Amanda Williams. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Talk more soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. 
To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts.